Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Gajo Galio Wow Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're fighting for our lives in the present when we're not flashing back to our uncanny pasts in Excalibur number 116, Death in Venice, featuring the shocking resurgence of Kurt Wagner's greatest foe, who is definitely exactly who you think it is. Excalibur number one. <laughs> originally published in January 1998 and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Mel Ruby on pencils, Rob Hunter on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Kiff Scholl on letters, and Kelly Corvess and Jason White on editing. Our historic first view of the newcomer's ship. Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment. But they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles. Welcome to the final 10 episodes of our weekly vivisections <laughs> of the comic book known as Excalibur. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am, of course, Dr. Anna Papard. On the extremely slim chance that you happen to be new here, I love talking about sexy, gendery stuff, mostly in comics and sometimes not comics. You can find me talking comics on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Threads over at Sequential Scholars. And you can always find me on one of those places or in the wild, performing my very real job as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. This week, I'm campaigning to get him a towel. Moving on, I am joined as always by Mav. Are you feeling uncanny this week? I, I'm not feeling uncanny. And I think the problem is that, you know, I know the eyes of the Reaper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was so hoping someone would say that. That's awesome. I, know, I, I know the Reaper's eyes is because, you know, it, it's been a long time. I've looked directly into the Reaper's eyes during, you know, midterm grading that has been going on this week. And, you know, I have I have thankfully made it out the other side. But not all, not everyone made it. And, and it, <laughs> you know, we lost many good men in grading for mid-semester and it's very sad. But beyond that, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Matt. <laughs> co-host of this show, another show called Vox Podcast. I'm, I teach, oh, I teach, I teach digital narrative interactive design at the University of Pittsburgh in cultural studies. Like seriously, there was so much grading in the last week that like... It's like my brain melted, and I'm currently editing a volume on on Batman, but not Batman. From I got a lot of stuff going on. I'm I'm, just, I'm very tired. <laughs> yeah, and next, of course, we have best-selling author 
Andrew Demand. Andrew, how are you feeling this week? Are you feeling famous? I, I think that's a really charitable definition of best-selling. <laughs> you are literally the best-selling author in that. our category on Amazon yeah. at this moment. I thought I'm number two. You might be number two by now. I, did, I didn't check today. You, you have been for several days. You have been the best-selling author okay, on Amazon in our category. <laughs> Yes. Uh, or very small category, but nonetheless. <laughs> Still. <laughs> well, I thought it was kind of funny because they, they do the categories and the one was um, gra- comics and graphic novels. And I'm like, I could get to number one on that. I'm not going to be able to convince anyone at my university that that's good. <laughs> but they also track gender studies. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Demand of Sequential Scholar St. Jerome's and the author of The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender and the X-Men, available wherever fine books are sold except Canada, where I live. Because <laughs> Canada ran out. Yeah, you, you, I mean, it's, that's pretty That's pretty impressive. It's not just that it's they not... They just undersupplied it, Matt. Yeah. I'm pretty not, sure they had like five copies. You sold out across Andrew. Canada. <laughs> I mean, like there, there are 15 people who live in your country and 14 of them bought the book and one guy is really mad. <laughs> they all know each other. Oh my god, Andrew, you're gonna have to get over this self-deprecation and lean into your best-selling status. I'll I'll keep working on you. Okay. Accompanying our descent or ascension into the final ten weeks of the pod is an awesome fellow comic scholar who's a first-time guest on our pod, but not new to podcasting. Our Excala crew is delighted to welcome Josh Rose. Hello, Josh. Hey, hi. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited, and self-deprecation is my middle name. So, <laughs> oh no, um... we have so much of that on this podcast. <laughs> Well, I'm sure giving you a glowing bio is just going to help your self-deprecation so much. So let's do that. Josh Rose is professor of art history at Dallas College Brookhaven. After earning a BFA in painting and realizing studio art was not really his calling, he earned an MA in art history from the University of North Texas. He researches surrealism, surrealist photography, and the intersection of comics and art history. He has also dabbled in alternative newspaper cartooning with his strip Cosmo, earning a place in Andrews McNeil's nationwide college cartoon collection strip search in 1999. Hmm. He's also tried his hand at curating, serving as sole curator of the 2016 exhibition Heroes in the Making, the Art of Comic Production. All awesome things. I want to get into your research and background a little bit more, but we'll start with our usual getting to know you question, which is, Josh, tell us about your comics origin story. Have you been a lifelong reader? When did you discover comics? Oh, gosh. Um, Yes. Uh, Comics have been a part of my life since I can remember. I've always been fascinated by the medium and the just anytime as a little kid, if I saw something that was a comic, I was picking it up and like looking at it and examining it. You know, from an from an early age, I just assumed I was going to be either a comic or an animator. That was my my kind of dream goal from you know tween years up through high school kind of on on into college even when I was studying painting and I was one of the the weirdos in my my painting program who not only drew comics on the side but also loved art history uh I think I was the only one that liked that at the time but this was like the you know mid 90s and um yeah I've just I've I've always loved comics I have a I have a soft spot for newspaper comics because it's the thing I read every morning when I was eating cereal I was into comic books as as a kid my parents always knew they could placate me on trips if they just bought me a single issue of a comic and I was fine for hours <laughs> um yeah I just they've always been a part of my life oh 
well, what kind of comics are you particularly drawn to? Like, are you a voracious reader? Do you read across genres? Have you moved from one genre to the other at different points in your life? Definitely, yeah. I uh, I would say up until my teen years, I pretty much equally read newspaper strips and, you know, kind of like mainly Marvel comic books. I was more of a Marvel kid than a DC kid. And uh, Spidey was my jam. I was into X-Men kind of during the Silvestri era. So up through like Fall of the Mutants. And then I kind of bounced off right when they rebooted everything. Once, you know, the whole 90s kind of pre-image gang came on board with Jim Lee and everyone. Huge fan of Excalibur as soon as I, I, I'm still kicking myself. I had the original uh, prestige format book and then probably the first 12 or 13 issues. And I wish I'd held on to all of them. But about the time I got into high school, uh, you know, I had that like moment of crisis where I was like, oh, I can't be into comics anymore. So I I didn't read them as much. But thankfully, in late high school, I had a really good group of friends and they were all into comics. Two of them worked at a comic shop and it kind of got me back into comics. And they actually got me into like DC comics, which I never really read. Uh, They got me into this new thing at the time the, called Sandman. I don't know if anyone's mm-hmm. heard of it. Um, you know, <laughs> Black Orchid. Comic. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Black Orchid, like like all these oh, huge, yeah. hugely experimental stuff. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, I just said yes, absolutely. Black Orchid, highly underrated. Yeah, right. And, and, and it kind of, for me, seeing these comics was perfectly aligned with me as a young artist, right? Like they felt experimental. They felt more philosophical. And I was just enraptured with them. And so I kind of had this veer more towards what later would become Vertigo. I read all those books. The indie scene was burgeoning. So I read a ton of those. And that's kind of what I read up until, uh, ironically, until I worked at an art museum here in Dallas. And I was working in the adult programming department, which sounds sexier than it is. And, um, and I, uh, my, my boss, this amazing woman named Tracy Bay's Booth, encouraged me to start a comic book club that is still going to this day, but not at the museum. But what was so funny was starting that off, we read mainly, you know, high prestige books. And then slowly over time, once we went independent, a lot of the people in there said, well, you've got to go read this Batman book, or you have to go read this like X-Men book. And I slowly got back into mainstream comics again. So I kind of like balance the two now i'll read you know like an art book art kind of an art comic indie comic experimental stuff which are much more prevalent these days Mm -hmm. and i'll read you know your mainstream comics that come out each week so that's my journey (laughs) i think that dovetails nicely with what my next question was going to be which was how your scholarship on comics kind of intersects with your scholarship on high art and sort of what drives your passion for wanting to you know not just appreciate comics but but study comics to make them part of your academic practice yeah, God, I, I, I love this question so much. Personally, I don't see a difference between the two. If I study comics and I study art, to me, they're in the same realm. And in fact, mm. you know, I, I have some research that is still kind of on the back burner. But, you know, it's like looking at examples of work by fine artists. I, I You can't see me. I'm doing uh, scare quotes. Uh, quote unquote, fine artists <laughs> and comic artists as parallel at the same time. I don't see a distinction between the two and kind of what I kind of stumbled into comic studies because I was looking at the I think the incredibly diverse makeup 
of various scholars in comic studies and realized we're all art historians, right? And what kind of happened was, as I, I just randomly put a call out one day on a comics, the comic scholars listserv, this is, gosh, I don't know, maybe five years ago, just asking, hey, who here is an art historian? Because I'm one and I don't know. And like people kind of became coming out of the woodwork. And this led to uh, at the inaugural Comic Study Society conference, I organized a panel discussion basically about like art history and comics and I'm oh, sorry, art history and comic studies. And mm-hmm. part of that was from my perspective, recognizing how art history seems to not want to embrace comics. Um, part of it was I I went through a decade's worth of college art association schedules. That's the big annual conference for higher ed art educators, art historians, and studio artists. Uh, it's like it's the like bee's knees. And I looked through, and over a decade, there were I think I count on one hand the number of panels or sessions dedicated to comics. It was it was so untapped. And that panel was basically just asking why, like, what is it about comics that art historians don't want to tackle, especially when art history embraces so many other areas like the culture of prints and performance art and gender and feminism. And it's like, what is it about comics that it doesn't really want to embrace? And that's kind of where my research began. And at the moment, it's kind of where it stopped. I haven't really gone much further than that uh, at the time, but it's um, it's been heartening because since that panel, so many great books have come out about comics and art history. I think it's really, really important that I think comic studies does a great job, uh, a fantastic job of embracing so many diverse areas, but art history as a discipline doesn't want to embrace comics, or at least not yet. And I find that really fascinating. Oh, well, I mean, let me drill down on that a little bit, because one of the questions I keep forcing people to answer <laughs> to <laughs> I love it. has to do with our particular neglect of this general era of comics, like the 90s, more the early 90s, but continuing into this era as well as being sort of emblematic of everything that's most embarrassing about comics. And I don't mean indie comics. I just mean specifically the superhero stuff that was especially hyper-violent, especially hyper-sexual, especially excessive during this era. And it's often pointed to as, you know, these are the worst comics that we don't want to have representing comic studies and therefore they're not worth studying. But I mean, how can we apply the logic, that logic to an era like this? I mean, do you think this era of comics is worth studying? Oh, wow. That is such a good question. I I feel like it's worth studying. All right, let me put on two hats. My my <laughs> history and art history hat says, of course, right? Like I feel like any area, any era is worth studying because it's going to be informative of what was happening in that era, both broadly in terms of the bigger ideas of culture and society and and I think more fine-tuned in terms of the industry itself right I mean yeah I cringed a little bit reading this issue because I was thinking back (laughs) to right this was this was kind of everything that little baby me was kind of pushing back against about comics of this time because Mm -hmm. I wanted more artistry I wanted more thoughtfulness I wanted more experimentation and this era I think particularly 
particularly with Marvel books, feels very commercial. But I think also means it's absolutely worth studying because then we have to dive into well, what made Marvel books more commercial then, right? How come Marvel was much more focused on <laughs> producing, pun intended, X number of X books, right, from the late 90s yeah. onward? Whereas DC had, under the auspices of someone like Karen Berger and others, like, this wildly experimental era that Marvel never seemed to quite tap into. So yeah, I'm in, and of course I also just come down to, I think any era is worth studying, you know, regardless of whether it speaks to the individual directly or not. So. <laughs> well, maybe we'll put, we'll put good. you and all, that is a good defense. <laughs> and we'll, we'll put that and all of us to the test as we get into the artistic choices in this particular issue. I know you were saying before we started recording that it was kind of wild for you to jump into these final 10 issues of Excalibur after you were far more familiar with the first 12, 14 issues. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to hear your thoughts and we'll break down some of the art at hand a little more closely. <laughs> so um, we'll do an issue summary and then we'll come right back to you for some first impressions, Josh. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, which just got harder again because this bunch of issues is not on Marvel Unlimited, which is unfortunate. Um, but if you, if you Google where to read it for free, you can probably figure it out. Wink. Not not that we condone such things, of course, but we do condone concisely chronicling issues some of you may not have read, so let's get to it. Excalibur number 116 opens with a dizzying close-up of Nightcrawler! He's back! And a little worse for wear, he's been pursued by three initially mysterious alien beings through a network of underground tunnels. The beings squirt him with goo, and he writhes in what is presumably pain, if only he had friends who could help him. Meanwhile on Muir Island, Pete Wisdom is brooding until Megan bursts in and informs him that before the Cerebro unit he fried in childish anger went offline and detected a mutant signature. The signature belongs to none other than their missing teammate Kurt Wagner, who is apparently in Venice. Soon, the team minus Kitty Pride, who joined a different book off panel, agrees to depart for Venice to rescue their friend. Back in the tunnels beneath Venice, Kurt's enemies jog his memory to reveal their backstory. We flash back to Kurt's uncanny X-Men days, specifically the aftermath of the Brood saga. The X-Men are aboard the Starjammer's ship when they encounter another ship helplessly adrift in space. But because the ship belongs to the Sidri, a ruthless race of bounty hunters, Captain Corsair refuses to lend a hand. But Kurt and Kitty have other ideas. They sneak off and administer a kind of genetic medicine to the Sidri. But unbeknownst to Kitty and Kurt, the so-called medicine changes the Sidri into the mutants chasing Nightcrawler. After story time, Excalibur arrives in Venice, launches their ship underwater in the direction of Nightcrawler's mutant signature, and promptly gets most of the team incapacitated. Only Colossus is left to save Kurt from three Sidri who turn into one very large Sidri. I think I was confused by this sequence. We'll talk about it at that point to be continued. So Josh, part of why I wanted to have you on for this episode had to do with your your background in art history and your work on surrealism because we definitely have some interesting wild wacky confusing as I said artistic choices in this particular issue <laughs> I was surprised that it was the same penciler as our previous issue because the style is quite different mm -hmm. here and I wonder how much it had to do with him having more time or a different inker but um, those mysteries will remain mysteries unless we ask him but coming to you Josh for some first impressions <laughs> after reading this comic book what if anything are you particularly eager to talk about oh boy um all right well i guess pros and cons i should do the i should do the uh criticism sandwich um <laughs> i i really loved the flashback like if i had still been reading this 
when it first came out, that is exactly the sort of thing that would have been compelling to me. I love when comics, not like in a canon way, but when they reference older stories that mm-hmm. seems to invite readers into going back and reading those stories, right? And and that those stories have consequences that can last around. So I really, really liked that aspect of it. I felt like the, the art and I think a lot of the confusing panel layouts and composition and even action scenes just diluted a lot of that. Except for that one, there's one shot early on and see page three, I guess, at the bottom panel where you get the three Sidri kind of standing yeah. there. I've looked at that multiple times and I'm still trying to figure out what their physiognomy is. Like, I'm really not sure how they like what all the parts of them are. And then that only gets more confusing as you go through the issue where as they're attacking or doing other things and just like, is is that guy holding a stick? Like, I don't know what's going on here. So there was a lot of confusion with that on my end. I also, I, I guess I really need to read the issue before this one and see how the artist did because I'm I'm very disturbed by the way he draws hands. <laughs> Is it just me? Like I feel like his hands are all joints. Like there's no padding, there's no there's no like it's just like fingers and joints and they're there are just moments where I was reading and I would kind of lose track because I'm just like, that finger is weird. You know, <laughs> like I'm just like staring at it. And that's me, I think, being an art snob. But there is something about fingers that have too many bins in them really disturb me. And that <laughs> fingers that have too many fingers. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> So yeah, it just it, it just happened a lot in this issue. And I kind of feel like I need to see more work by the artist to see if this was maybe a one off or if that's just the way that hands are approached, you know, but yeah, those were the things that kind of stood out to me. That's interesting. I am. Um... I don't know. I think about the hands thing as like even like a Ditko thing going way back. But I mean, it's just sort of like the focus on hands as storytelling and sort of the almost fetishization of hands. But I mean, in this era, was it like a thing where everybody was trying to copy like Madureira? Like, I feel like I associate that with him. But someone please correct me if someone else is is particularly known for the hand. And we talked about that with Pacheco, too. But I feel like Madureira was a little bit before. So and there was also, oh, God, I'm going to who who did Age of Apocalypse? Joe Mad was a big one on that one though, right? Was it okay? I just I remember that artist also having like very expressive hands and fingers. Hubert's on it, Tony Dan, Sal LaRocca's on it, Chris Bacalo's on it. Yeah, a lot of people were on Yeah, it. yeah, okay. Yeah. I guess there were like twenty books in the line, so you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry, I I derailed us into Age of Apocalypse, my bad. Um oh, no, <laughs> so. no. It's so, I mean, it's famously an event that we're not aware of on this podcast. Um, I'm, yeah. <laughs> cover it That's right. Never heard of it. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Apaka who? But um, certainly, like, yeah, Madureira was one of the artists on that book, and our friend Ken Lashley might have been involved in an Excalibur tie-in <laughs> that I, you know, I don't know. I, I've never heard of it, but uh, some of our listeners have told us we should check it out. <laughs> Um, anyway, let me pick up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav, and then maybe we'll get into some of these artistic choices. I definitely want to talk about the flashbacks, so I'm happy that you're eager to talk about it, Josh. So, coming to you first, Mav, how are you feeling this week? Uh, don't love it. (laughs) (laughs) There's, I just, I, I don't know, like, logically, none of this makes any sense. Visually, none of this makes any sense. Financially, canonically, metaphorically, like I, <laughs> nothing here works for me. 
honestly. I don't hate it. This is not like one of those issues where, you know, we've had other episodes where I'm just like, oh my God, this is awful. This is something where I feel like they were trying some stuff and none of it came together the way that I think it was supposed to. Like even Rob's writing, I'm going to be really generous here. I think he's trying to do something with, you know, he, Rob has, has experimented before with the purple prose of the mm-hmm. 1960s and trying to bring it back. And I did that in my intro with the, you know, he knows the eyes of the Reaper. He like, <laughs> I, I, I get what he's going for, but he fell a little short and I feel like Ruby's pencils fell a little short. I feel like Hunter's inks fell a lot short for me on this. And we'll talk about that when we get to the art section, but like the storyline, like where Kurt is, how Kurt got there, the logic that the rest of Excalibur is dealing with them in relationship to Kurt and with Pete Wisdom. Um, The fact that Colossus is suddenly team leader. The fact that Megan is once again an idiot. Sometimes she's not. Sometimes she is. She's a moron in this book um, (laughs) who doesn't understand her own powers or, you know, how wind works. Like literally everything about this. It like there are bits that just fall flat that I know are supposed to work. And where I'm going is I'm like, you took a great big swing there and struck out (laughs) big time, three times. And it's just it was a lot. How about how about you, Andrew? You want to weigh in? I'm warmer than Mav on it, but I like I agree with Mav. But I like the purple prose. I, I enjoyed yeah. it again, and I I even enjoyed the attempt to frame around the Reaper's eyes. That's okay. that's interesting to me. As you said, it, the execution's not fantastic. Yeah, it, the I, plot I is bad. He tried. I I mean, I, yeah, I, I yeah, exactly. Something there. Yeah, I, I think the the hitch for me as an English major is the title. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which like. I can infer two things from this. One, that Ben Robb is aware that there is a book titled Death in Venice. And two, that Ben Robb has absolutely never read Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. Because <laughs> the connection is disturbing at best. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. No, it was just, it's not good. It was, it was really unfortunate. He should have stuck to basing his song titles on, or his his issue titles on uh, 90s music. Yeah. We've had a couple of, I just, God damn it. I was singing that stupid REM song like the whole time while I was editing, like Excalibur 114. Which, like which song title did they use? I'm curious. For the one I love. This one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was really in my head <laughs> oh, for a number of days. Well, one of my issues with this one, and I am so happy that I finally, finally get a chance to publicly gripe about this because it really bothered me at the time and I was like literally the only person in the entire world who cared, is that there's a weird non-tie-in between this issue and Giant Size Nightcrawler from 2020, written by Jonathan Hickman and illustrated by our beloved Alan Davis, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the first Kurt solo story from the Krakoan era. And it's so odd because the plot of that story involves Kurt leading a mission back to the abandoned mansion to like deal with a herd of Sidri who have taken up residence there. And it's so random that you would choose the Sidri as an antagonist. And yet there's absolutely no connection to this story. So Mm -hmm. it's just like the randomness of choosing that. And they actually do have this strong connection to Nightcrawler. And yet you're doing the Nightcrawler solo story and not connecting it. I was like, oh, it hurt my head, that decision. Like, I was like, I get that no one cares about this story or this era. Very much. (laughs) Oh, 
So that was one that was one of them that I was gonna say. So one of the earliest comic book academic nerdery things that I did was that when I was seven, I started memorizing the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. Oh my hero. Um, <laughs> this was a pointless endeavor, but like <laughs> but it but it 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 set me on a road. You know, like, like, like it set me on a road to where I am now. And we've, I've, I've railed about not caring as much about continuity as I did. And, you know, I've sort of, I've gone post-continuity, post-modern, post, like, I'm, I'm not the scholar at 49 that I was at seven. Okay. So <laughs> that, that said, like to use the Citri as, um, as, as a villain only makes sense if you're like, Hey, here's a deep cut for people who like deep cuts, which was, you know, me, I'm, I'm like the guy going, yeah, let's do this. And then to present an alien race that has nothing to do with the race that you chose at random from the catalog of alien races in the back of the official handbook, because that's what, that's what this seems. They don't look the same. They don't act the same. They're mutated. So why, why does it even matter that they're them? They don't seem to have any of the history. Colossus remembers them, but Kurt doesn't like literally everything about this was just like, okay. I, I understand the swing. Why, why do this? Yeah. <laughs> Unforced but, error. Why? But we've been so, I mean, I don't think we've been that hard on Ben Rob, but you know, Hickman is supposed to be the savior of the X-Men franchise. And I'm saying that the 2020, the 2020 giant size Nightcrawler is worse because it's picking up the Sidri as a deep cut. And then the one reason that it would make sense to have the Sidri be Kurt's antagonist in a Kurt solo story is completely dropped. <laughs> and it's just mm -hmm. like yeah, well, the dumbest choice. <laughs> And, and the whole, like, the whole kind of subplot of that Hickman reboot, which is, for the first time ever, they are kind of taking control of their, their status as mutants, their place in the world, right? Having their own embassy, being able to regenerate mutants after death, seems to factor in pretty interestingly to the flashback in this issue where they, they make a choice to help the Sidri and in doing so harm this little group of Sidri, right? So it, it seems like that would tie in, like, that may be a deep cut, but it's also a pertinent cut in this for that Hickman run. So yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 also kind of baffled. They it was didn't a very call strange back to choice to me. It was a very Hickman strange didn't read choice. The story. It wasn't on Unlimited. Well, I guess, and I get that. I get that, but yeah. I felt a little bit like a teacher being like, "You should have Googled the words Nightcrawler and Sidri before writing a story about Nightcrawler and the Sidri." Like this is on the Marvel Wiki. Like, come on. Okay, okay I, was gonna, I was gonna ask. Does that work, Nightcrawler Sidri? If I Google it, will will I get this? Because in the Marvel fandom Wiki, this story is not. Not mentioned in the Sidri entry. I know I checked. <laughs> so, wow. so was, well, the fandom's dropping the ball. Then I guess I yeah. should go in and correct that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's. But yeah, I was, I was wondering that as well because, because it, it was little things like that. I'm just like, why take this for, for, failure for everyone involved? I'm like failure anyway. for Hickman, failure for Rob. I don't know. It, I mean, it, it hurts me that possibly. I mean, I don't know. It could be the last time that Alan Davis draws Nightcrawler, and to drop the ball like that on me, it hurts me. No. It hurts me. Yeah, but no, um, I. I'm I hadn't it. even thought of it that way, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, anyway, let's talk about some of the art in our present issue a little bit more. And Josh, you already started that conversation a little bit by talking about some of the confusingness of these choices. But yeah, I don't know. I kind of I had an impulse to want to redeem this style. I had kind of a fascination with the 90s art. I mean, my my very charitable reading was this is weird art to depict weird beings. And maybe that like works for me in certain instances, but I'd love to hear your take on it a little bit more. Like to the degree that this art wasn't working for you, why wasn't it working for you? Oh, I know I'm, I'm going to sound like such a huge snob when I talk Go about for this it. And, and I don't. So, all right, I'll, I'll preface all this to say this was the era of comics where I kind of, I turned away from the mainstream because I just, I never really liked the whole, that whole crew that founded Image. They were so influential and prevalent that it just kind of impacted mainstream comics for a decade. Mm. And I, I never really liked it. I felt it was, it was too overdone, the inking style. I mean, how many hatch lines can you draw? Um, <laughs> just, I never really liked it. <laughs> I was just right. thinking, which, which artist should I do in the joke there where I'm like, hold my beer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so I kind of felt like like I was reacting to that, like me at, you know, God, how old was I? 20, I guess. No, not even that, maybe 18, 19. Um, kind of reacting to that style as it emerged as I was reading this. There were some nitpicky things I could point out. Like I'm 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 looking at page, uh, it's the the page when Megan comes in with wisdom and somehow his I, I'm gonna assume that scotch, his scotch bottle has grown like two times or like one and a <laughs> half times. Like it's enormous. It's like it's gone from like a 12 liter to like a, a gallon. You know, th th these types of things just I, I think it's the artist story in me. They just, they stick with me and they, and I, they remove me from the storytelling. Another instance, I think going back to like the, the, the purple prose, which I agree feels very 1970s. feels also very Claremont to a certain degree. That last instance where it comes up when you get the full shot of the three Sidri and it says, uh, no, Kurt, yes, Kurt knows the Reaper's eyes. They are hollow, cold, blacker than the void of space. But in the art, their eyes are red. So I just, again, that's the moment where I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm taken out of this, right? There's a disconnect here. And that's just me being nitpicky. I'm also deeply bothered by the weird hands. Um, <laughs> it, it, there is, the in the flashback, there is a panel with, uh, with Storm and Cyclops. The way her fingers are, I know this is an audio format, I'm doing a great job, but the way that her fingers kind of arc and bend upward, it's her like palm. she is breaking parts of her palm to get them to do that. Like it just really disturbs me. So yeah. And I also thought some of the pacing with like the fight scene at the end made following what was happening hard. Yeah, That's not this creative team's fault. I think a lot of comics, especially in the 90s, but this goes back even further, had trouble with that. I mean, th this isn't a unique problem, I think, at this point. So yeah, pacing was definitely an issue for me. And I mean, we've talked about that related to excess in the past that, you know, <laughs> too much excess just makes it hard to understand the relationship between one panel and the other and just yeah. yeah some stuff here like the again that 
thing of the Sidri, I think, merging. I just, I read that a billion times and I could not figure out what was being drawn or communicated there. I'm just guessing. And also the panel where Megan gets taken out, like the sequence where Megan gets taken out. I'm like, oh, why uh. did she just get hit with water? And then I only knew that she was taken out because Colossus says so. And I was mm. like, wait, when did that happen? And I went back and I was like, oh, I guess there, but it wasn't clear to me because she controls elements now. So why would she get taken out by a wave? Right. But anyway, I don't know. Mav, you said you wanted to talk about the inking a little bit. So the floor is yours if you want to tackle it. I don't know if anybody else has ever inked a comic and it works a little different today. Today, people, you know, like my more recent work I've done digitally and it's the way of the future. And But some people, mm-hmm. some people are old school and they like to ink with a brush or a pen. And this was that era. I don't know if anybody's ever bought India ink or I'm not sure. I, I, I would imagine that's what Hunter used for this. And I don't recall the um, price that I was paying for India ink back in 1998, 99. But I know that today it costs about $10 for about two ounces. And that can usually last you quite a while. Like India ink goes a long way. They used approximately 47 bottles of ink. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much heavy black. So much. And I get that it's trying to do like sort of a gothic horror thing i i appreciate on the first page the heavily shadowed nightcrawler face i appreciate where it's trying to go it does not work for me the shadows don't make sense on the you know on the next page where nightcrawler's upside down and he's shadowing his face but the light is also coming from the direction of the shadow and then the light <laughs> like, like, just from a craft point of view this is much like this is much like Josh's point with the, with the hands. From a craft point of view, there are technical errors that make me just go, huh? Because I, I appreciate that they are resisting the urge to, you know, the urge to be a Jim Lee, Lee clone. Um, right, yeah. They, they, are, they are resisting that. But this is... This is not something, and I maybe, I mean, I don't know. I'm imagining maybe this is the first time Hunter and and Ruby work together. But they do the next issue as well, and it's better. It is markedly better next issue. It's cleaner, and and it's less confusing, the choices that are made throughout it. This feels undefined and muddy in a way that it's not supposed to and it bugs me and it, and that carries on through like even uh, like looking at their style you saw like the thing that you were talking about with Storm's hand well a, right above Storm's hand you have a picture of Wolverine and Wolverine is drawn in that image style right but yep. like other characters in the same panel like Scott is not and they're and they share panel space and that's something that one can do intentionally for creative reasons but it doesn't feel like it's done intentionally here kitty is drawn throughout this entire flashback she has very much a larry stroman vibe to me and that's not the the vibe of the rest of the artwork so so it feels very influenced by too many different hands yeah and without consistency or logic and that carries all the way through to the stuff that Anna, you were just talking about like when I got when when I got to the last page and the and the Sidri are like merging into Super Sidri, Voltron Sidri, whatever. I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, whatever, sure, okay, I don't care anymore. And that's kind of that's kind of what I was at with them. It's like I like that's clearly what I think happened, but it's drawn so muddy and and not not convincingly that like you're like, wait, can they do that? And then you go, eh, whatever. It's the last page. <laughs> 
<laughs> let's just say they can so we can be done and that and that's how it felt and i was just like i i shouldn't feel that way i i shouldn't feel i i shouldn't feel accepting because i'm tired it's a 25 page book <laughs> you know, dude, i i i hadn't thought of it like so many different artistic kind of i don't Style, say influences yeah. but like like these different like buckets they're pulling from yeah do you think that was an artistic decision or an editorial decision or both? i don't know i i think I think it was rushed or something because again, it doesn't happen next issue. It's you know, I'm not I'm not gonna say that they're my favorite artist. I just think that like you just com you just commented on the red eyes. The red eyes, I'm sure, happened because this was drawn Marvel method, so the scripting wasn't written yet, and somebody wrote the black text, or I mean, somebody Rob wrote the black text line, um, the black eyes line. And sent it to the letterer, and the colorist got the pages from the inker, and like there was no communication there. It just happened. I'll give you another example of, of the same thing. The very first page of the book, who the hell made the decision to print the yes. lettering on the uh, title of Red on Red? Red, yeah. Oh, so Be bad. kidding me. Like, there, there are red letters, brighter red letters on a darker red. Like, good luck if you, you know, if this is your first professional credit and you want to show your mom and be proud of it. Oh, well, because <laughs> your name's not, your name's in invisible ink on this page. On this, and, I, and it's just, decisions like that are just baffling to me from a design aesthetic point of view. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of see, I mean, when you think about it being rushed or like a team that's working together for the first time, it's just like, it does feel like a lot of these images, just like, even as I'm flipping through it, I'm like, you can see just hints of swipes of other things because you know mm -hmm. you're trying yeah. to like rush the visual language like like you're saying this is a jim willie wolverine this is like mm -hmm. whoever picture of colossus and you you kind of default to that when you don't have enough time or you haven't figured out your own approach to these characters and yeah that's interesting it'll be interesting look at the musculature on kitty right here she's 13 and has been with the team for two months <laughs> she's like she's literally been there for like like this is like her first big thing that she got to do as an x-man and she is ripped <laughs> It's tragic that we didn't do retro art for the flashback, or at least a distinctive change in the artwork. And I almost feel like, again, it's it's hard to separate the pencils from the inks here because the inks are so heavy, as we've talked about. But I almost get the sense like Ruby was trying to do that in some moments, but the inking spoils it. And I, it's obviously not a concerted effort. It was not what I would want. But um, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on the art, Andrew, because I, I also want to talk to you about the, the Claremont era flashback but I don't know you said that this comic is working for you a little bit better than it's working for some of us so so what was your feeling yeah. about the art here Andrew I think I've discussed it before is just kind of a a me thing where I, I kind of enjoy seeing artists experiment and not necessarily land it yet and I was enjoying the visuals on that level for all the reasons Mav already talked about just yeah they're trying new stuff and it doesn't fit together <laughs> most of it's not working <laughs> but like i like the splash page i like the, the the way that the sort of chase scene up the wall created a sense of um confusion and disorientation uh and i don't know yeah the, the stylistic variation is wild the swipes are intense you've got like a spaceship straight out of um uncanny x-men 276 like it's just it's a swipe i, I, I thought it was weirdly entertaining for me to be able to go that looks like that guy that looks like that guy yeah yeah <laughs> doing something cool here it, it doesn't go here it, it falls apart on that level and i was thinking as well of anna you've talked before about the distinction between um uh, aesthetic art and narrative art and i think that's that's definitely in play here for all the reasons you've already mentioned but it was a enough of a hodgepodge of interesting ideas that i wasn't bored at least 
in that sense? There's a lot of exaggerated, gooey, sticky, interesting superhero bodies in this comic. And I want to talk mm. about that more in the next one when we have a lot of interplay with Colossus and Nightcrawler, which I find very interesting. The melodrama there heightened by the gooey excessiveness of <laughs> the battle that they have with the Sidri is something I'm definitely going to want to talk about. So if you're disappointed that I'm not talking in depth about <laughs> gooey Colossus in the water, and how similar it is to Joe Quesada's pinup of Namor from the swimsuit special. Just wait. I am going to talk about it next week. But for now, I was just like, again, my charitable reading of it is that when it works for me, it's like the disorientation of the art reflects the disorientation of the battle. And in those moments, I can justify right. it. But it's just, it's so inconsistent throughout this issue that I, it's a hodgepodge, as we've been saying. Well, so I, I do have a, a, a dumb question. Have the Sindri appeared before to where we've seen them? Yes. Okay, because it's X-Men 150-ish, 155, somewhere in there. Okay, because for, for me, I was not aware of what they look like. So, which I, mm. I thought was important that the creative team is trying to make a, an important point about their actions in the flashback changing the physiognomy of the Sidri made them outcasts. And of course, Kurt looks different than human, so he is an outcast. But I didn't... There was no presentation of how they look different from normal Sidri. So I was just, you know, I was even further befuddled because I was like, I have a very loose understanding of how they look normally. I yeah. agree with you, Anna, at the end. I don't know if they merged into one or if they like split their shells open and were like shedding them. I don't know what happened there at the end, but I, I don't understand how they look different from a normal Sidri to then become outcasts. And would would have including an image of that in this flashback been helpful? I mean, I, I say for me it would have, but I don't know if it would have been helpful for an Excalibur reader up to this point. Oh, they've not appeared in, the X, in Excalibur. Um, oh, well, then Oh, I just checked. Um, they are their first appearance is Uncanny X Men number one fifty four, which is the story. I believe the storyline that this is being inserted into. Andrew, if I'm correct, right? And they don't look like this. Is the answer? Like they're they're kind of flying triangle kind of things. Like I wonder. Like they're saying, "Hey, there's been a mutation." So that they can get away with drawing them however they want. But also, it they're just different looking creatures that, other than the fact that they can merge their bodies, I don't know what their relationship is to the original Sidri. Yeah, I mean, because it's supposed to be this kind of dramatic reveal, but without a... Because, I mean, you know, it is a lot to expect any reader to remember like a comic from 20 years ago when like these are not villains yeah. that have appeared consistently so i think that that impact is going to be lost on most readers okay so it wasn't just me then um i'm oh. i'm glad to know that because i just googled sidri marvel and the the majority of images are from this issue <laughs> so it's like oh, they right. somehow become at least from a <laughs> google search standpoint the canonical sidri um, well, that lends further credence to my annoyance at Jonathan Hickman, but anyway. <laughs> um, it does, absolutely. <laughs> He's done many other well, things that I like. You can also see if you... If you if you on that same page they got i have both of them yeah there's um there's the triangular flying ones and then there's these and i don't i don't i don't understand <laughs> i just <laughs> yeah they look very different uh, as drawn by alan davis and giant size nightcrawler as well sort of like mini triangle tiny techno organic looking things anyway 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 i wanted to talk about the flashback a little bit and i'll give you first crack at it andrew because 
oh my goodness, your Claremont run skills coming to bear on this retconning of that era. I mean, what did you make of this flashback, Andrew? I'll ask you just the, the purely subjective question of did you enjoy it? A little bit. So I think one of the ways that it achieves narrative sort of um, parallelism with the original Brood Saga, mm -hmm. uh, which is related to the Sidri story, is the Brood Saga was basically a meditation on, on death from a series of vignettes from different characters. So, so it was like, you know, uh, what does death mean to a 13 year old yeah. girl? What does yeah. death mean to an ageless, almost, um, um, so, well, technically self healing mutant, that kind of stuff. Um, so the Reaper narration actually thought lent itself well to that. Uh, and at the same time, you're, you're creating this juxtaposition that creates this, this kind of cool sense of what does it mean to these characters now? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, what is death now as a result of what they've been through? So there's a lot of narrative potential for me, uh, I think, in that flashback. And then in line with that was ex exactly what we've already discussed, which is the kind of simple joy of going back to this era, this sort of Dave Cockrum um, spacefaring pirate adventure type story. And that was fun, too. So I don't know. T to me, I think it was a good move overall. I, I think it had a lot of um, potential to propel the story forward. For me, it falls flat with the kind of generic, we're mad at you because you tried to do something nice that marginally affected us. So now we're going to kill you kind of thing. Uh, and the whole, you know, we're your villains, but we're also mutants. But you have to teach us how to accept ourselves through the medium of punching or something like that. <laughs> I <laughs> So where it went with it didn't really pay off. Again, coming back to some of the stuff that Mav was saying, but I thought there was a lot of potential uh, in, in that flashback. And again, just a visceral joy uh, in going back to that era a little bit. Well, I I know you I know that you quote my thread about Kitty and Kurt that I did for Claremont Run in the Claremont Run book. So I will say, yeah. and I definitely mentioned there are space team ups in that thread. So it's hard for me to separate the things I did enjoy from this flashback from just the simple nostalgia of that. Like, oh man, Kitty and Kurt being friends, you know, and having space adventures. That was when I first started to like love the relationship between those characters because they have a couple of times that they do the space adventures. And, you know, the first time Kitty kills a sentient being, it is to protect Nightcrawler and they have a deep bond through a number of these sort of character building adventures that take place when Kitty is first learning to be an X-Man and Kurt is very much sort of her mentor and protector in a lot of those issues and so I have a lot of attachment to that and I liked that it was them sort of teaming up to go against the rest of the team here you know mm -hmm. they were the ones with a conscience it emphasizes the way that those characters are linked thematically you know both characters who have been at various times heart and soul of the X-Men type characters and you know they're the ones that go against Corsair's order and try to do the right thing and it backfires but it seems in character for them to try so all of those things i liked about it it tried to incorporate some goofy slapstick with like kurt wrapping his tail around kitty's mouth again mm -hmm. i don't think he should be doing that with his tail we don't know where it's been but i appreciated the effort <laughs> it was it was goofy and fun i'll let i'll let him have it and so yeah i don't know the nostalgia there worked for me it is the reason i remember this issue i didn't remember anything else from the issue but i remembered the flashback but um i don't know let's pick up some other thoughts about it josh i mean you're someone that remembers some of these older issues of uncanny as well i think you said that some of the nostalgia was working for you oh yeah absolutely i i would say the the flashback by far made the issue for me i i i love sort of in the in the same way mav you you uh you know we're i was an avid reader of the handbook of the marvel universe i was also that weird kid that loved marvel saga because you know back oh, in the so good 
I know, right? It was impossible to find old issues. And so I was just reading Marvel Saga left and right. So this definitely, like, a flashback like this to me made makes a, a book like Excalibur feel like part of the bigger universe rather than a spinoff. And so I, I, I loved it. I, I really liked it. I, I, it, it did weirdly make me yet again vehemently hate costume designs of the 90s. I mean, just looking at, you know, the way they're, they're drawing, uh, you know, Colossus's outfit. And then you look at him in the contemporary day. Why does he have these massive shoulder pads, right? I mean, I know it's the 90s. You had to have massive shoulder pads. But what are they doing for him? It just, it's such a different, like a different approach, a different world of kind of comic design. And yeah, I loved it. I love the flashback. This is, again, exactly the sort of thing that I, I lived for as a kid reading comics was getting a reference like this and then knowing I have to go somehow track this down and, uh, and yeah. learn about what all this was. So, I mean, Mav, do you want to weigh in on the flashback before we move to some some final thoughts and cover some stuff we haven't got a chance to talk about? I agree. It's the best part of the issue. It's, it's a swing that doesn't connect. I hate when I feel like I'm being too hard on Rob. I like that he's trying to do something editorial is clearly trying to force him to make to make this an x book and what could be more x booky than just kind of tossing in a bunch of x-men and star jammers so yeah true (laughs) i mean sure right like i I, i'm not mad at it it's more just like where it falls apart I, i i get frustrated by it more than anything else i i i sort of do appreciate that it is rewarding me for being a longtime fan without being too confusing because they're you know like who are the sidri that's confusing but on the other hand things like look binary i know that's ms marvel it's not explained here you're not going to hit me over the head with it it's just going to be like hey look binary's on this ship because of course she would have been at that moment and chuck is not there but lilandra is and i know why but the book's not going to explain it to you and it, it like things like that were kind of neat i guess and then other stuff Nah, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I did like the attempts to connect. There's some frustration in that. I don't know. I don't know how much of it he wants to do this. It's just that this needs to be an X book in order if it's going to survive. So they're trying. I mean, spoilers, it's not going to survive. <laughs> well, let's move to some final thoughts. We didn't really talk about, well, a number of things from this comic that I'm sure we can circle back to if we would like to. So uh, I'll come back to you first, Andrew. Anything that you would like to circle back to or anything that you'd like to bring up that we haven't yet brought up? Uh, maybe a, a charitable read of the the Colossus leadership thing. Mm. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that he would take over to try to save Kurt because that's totally something he would do. Mm-hmm. And I do like that if he were to do that, he would go with no plan whatsoever and it would go catastrophically bad immediately <laughs> because yeah. he was doing that. So to me, that read kind of cool and consistent and, and a little reminiscent of Nightcrawler's disastrous leadership attempt and uncanny right around 200 yeah i mean it's hard right because it's one of those things where it's not really rob's fault like this story would make so much more sense if kitty was the one saving kurt since the flashback involves them rather than colossus but i get that kitty was in the other book so it's not really his fault but like it's a bit frustrating i mean we'll have more to say at next issue about it next issue because that's when we really get colossus and nightcrawler talking about their deep brotherly bond in which they're more than brothers and uh definitely want to talk about that a 
little bit more there. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can't help it. I find the Colossus leadership thing frustrating, especially like when like the two most powerful members of the team, like Doug Locke and Megan, both get nerfed for no reason. Yeah. So that, like Pee-Wiz, the guy who just has like flame hands, can like swim them to the surface <laughs> of the... Like, how do you... How do you swim carrying two people? I don't know. He's got super strength now, apparently. Yeah. I mean, it would make like a lot more birds. sense to designate that job to Megan or Doug Locke, and yet Pete sure. and Colossus <laughs> are the two heroes of this book now. The two most toxically masculine characters. <laughs> I appreciate Colossus doing, like Andrew, I appreciate Colossus doing heroing here and trying to, and, like, and I appreciate that it fails. So I, I'm a His little hubris of it. is totally on brand, I admit. Yeah. That. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's true. I can't figure out how how Pete hears Colossus underwater um, yeah. when he gives him the thumbs up. Like that <laughs> just makes no sense. These are great <laughs> questions. That's and also, how does Colossus swim? I mean, the dude's made of metal. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I I did also. I I like. I guess. Uh, uh, speaking totally out of school here, I guess this is a period of Excalibur where the leadership is shifting and evolving. And so I, I think it's interesting to see when people, different people step in, right? Be it Kitty, be it Colossus, be it Nightcrawler, how that changes the approach they take as a team. So I, I, I like that. And I just also like it when a comic disrupts the norm. It's it's not a success, right? He attempts to do this thing. It goes sideways and we kind of end on a cliffhanger. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I don't want to complain more. I feel like I'm complaining too much this this episode, but it is just like rereading the entire series. It really struck me, and that was something that I struck me the first the first time I read Excalibur. You know, as a Nightcrawler fan, Kurt is ostensibly the leader of Excalibur for like most of the book. The number of <laughs> issues yeah. in which he actually does any team leading is astronomically low. <laughs> like, it's so always bizarre. like he's out of commission or like somebody else. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I like it's not all about being the leader, but it's still funny to me. Mav, anything you want to circle back to? Yeah, okay. So I don't know if this is good or bad. I like the continuity that Doug lux got the Cerebro helmet on it and it's got a hole in it because Pete Wisdom is an idiot. Um, So, so, so I, I like that. That is like that is like an attention to detail that I'm like, oh, yes, awesome. All right, so you didn't just, like, Pete Wisdom destroyed the helmet, and you didn't just forget, Doug Locke has to wear it with a hole in it. Hilarious, awesome, love it. No notes there. All right have notes is two major events from last well from the last few issues but first off kurt's dead now we weren't assuming kurt was dead they were looking for kurt and now he's presumed dead because we need pathos in this i guess because i don't like kurt's been in tough scrapes before they're x-men you know they were lost in the time stream for like you know (laughs) year of this book so like they're just like oh kurt was gone we don't know what happened to him so we're just well i guess he um, he's probably dead by now oh nope he's good we found him like that's it, it, it is a weird beat to have because they weren't behaving as though he was dead last issue. But now Pete Wisdom is like wrecked because I probably got him killed, even though Kurt's abduction seems to have had nothing to do with Pete's abduction other than the fact that they happen to happen at the same place at the same time. Well, so, I think that they like Black Air kind of sold him to the Sidri, sort of, uh, is what's suggested here. So there is okay. a tangential connection. I, I'll give Rob credit. He did try sure. to connect it. That's the thing the Sidri would do. 
sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they have Earth money for, you know, but anyway, whatever. But the other thing is, so say you read last issue and so you're really, really, really invested in this huge tension of cliffhanger that, you know, Rain jumped in and locked herself in quarantine with Moira. I know, and I know. wow, that was a lot. Wow, that was dramatic. Wow, I really want to know what happens next. Well, too bad. <laughs> You I don't know. get to learn. <laughs> Just like we're we're not going. We're barely going to mention it. <laughs> so. It's so jarring. I know. I mean, that's jarring. And then, I mean, it's just, I just, I feel like I'm doing so much complaining today, but it's just that like, I think the further we're getting into the Rob era, it becomes impossible not to, because there's just so much narrative inconsistency that makes you crazy. Because it's like, when you think about Kitty was just like wandering around in the basement of Muir Island looking for Lockheed, which I understand she loves Lockheed, but she was completely unconcerned about Kurt, you know, her like <laughs> best friend, longtime teammate, no, like Lockheed's their bond is underscored by the i look listen maybe she would choose Lockheed <laughs> over kurt i don't know but she had zero concern about kurt like megan and colossus granted they didn't know kurt was missing but still so unconcerned that they went on a vacation for a week with euro to, disney yeah. yep <laughs> and like, the fact pete wisdom is the only one on the whole team that even cared that kurt was missing like i don't know why pete's feeling so down on himself he's clearly the only member of this team who like is a human being apparently um, which is not something i would normally argue but anyway i have to let it go um my two brief ones were just to highlight that we have a uh cassidy cover here who will later be of course an iconic mm -hmm. artist on astonishing x-men uh some of his early work i don't I like the character modeling on the cover, but uh, I don't know about the Nightcrawler trying to bust his way out of a grocery bag kind of design. <laughs> it's a bit strange. But um, the character modeling, I'm definitely, definitely there for. And the other thing was just like, because it did make me laugh, was Kurt doing the like, <laughs> I mean, it's a Thanos line to a lot of Marvel people. They're like, I don't even know who you are. But um, I thought more of Mariah Carey when he's like, I don't even know you. Uh, with the Sidri, <laughs> we're trying to underscore their deep feud with kurt but anyway josh we'll come back to you to to conclude our discussion here today anything that you would like to circle back to or, or discuss that we didn't get a chance no i mean i again i i think it was just enormously for, for me at least like jumping in at issue 116 and not having any clue of like the subplot or, or like the things going on or even who pete wisdom is like i was just like there was a there was a i think i spent half the issue just trying to catch up with what was occurring and i think that's also why i found the flashback so compelling because it was it, for me it was like an anchor i was like oh thank god i i know this you know that kind of thing so <laughs> i do and this is totally random but i i assume it is probably come up in the past i did not know their ship was called the midnight runner and i assume it's a dexies reference is that just me <laughs> Oh, it's, I didn't I, even think about it. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've thought about it before. It's never explained. Brian just calls it that. Like, he doesn't refer to it by name as much. Also, it didn't used to look like that. that that's very Blackbird looking compared to the original. Yeah, Marvel. that's kind of what I thought it was at first was the Blackbird. Yeah, it, but... Well, I don't think it was communicated with the with the artist. Um, uh, so, makes sense. But, uh, <laughs> because the because Brian's Midnight Runner looks a little different. But yeah, I, I believe it is a I mean, I don't know if Rob even knows because he wasn't the art. He wasn't the writer when Brian first called it that. 
So okay, it just seems like a very appropriately British reference mm-hmm. for Excalibur. You know, love it. Um, <laughs> it hasn't come up before, believe it or not. So thank you. Oh, all right. I, I just I just assumed I was like dredging up an old an old discussion. So um, by asking that, no, I love it. Is that how you would like to wrap up the discussion, Josh? Or do you sidetrack? <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Yes. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Take Excalibur. Find a pool of calm water. Throw the sword into it. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Josh, thank you so, so, so much for joining us to kick off our final 10 episodes. I can barely believe it. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of the places that they can find you and your work if you want to be found. So yeah, if you want to be found online, whereabouts would people look for you and any past, present, future projects you would like to hype for our listeners? Wow. Uh, so I am, I'm, I'm, I'm not on Twitter, thank God, anymore. But uh, I am on threads. You can find me as uh, at St. Dormatius. Um, that's S-A-I-N-T-D-O-O-R-M-A-T-I-U-S. I'm also on Mastodon. There I am at Cosmosis uh, at Dice.Camp. Or you can just go to my website. Uh, it is Cosmocomics.net, which uh, I really need to get back on. But it's for a long time, it was just the repository for my college slash grad school uh, newspaper strip. There's a little archive of it there now, but now it's just a blog for all my weird random ramblings and things like that. So I was yeah, checking it out before the pod, Josh, and there was some, yeah, blogs about comics some podcast stuff on there so stuff i think our listeners would be interested in fantastic yeah please come come uh kick the tires and let me know if uh you find anything interesting (laughs) we will certainly link it in our show notes and yeah just thanks so much again for joining us no problem thank you all so much for having next as i promised kurt and piotr get very wet and sticky while discussing their unique bond at excalibur number 117 amendments i'm very much looking forward to the discussion on that one i think it's in my wheelhouse in the meantime if you'd like to what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous youtube videos which we've done for many of our earlier episodes plus our holiday specials you can find those via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we We've got some fun extras and via X slash Twitter and Blue Sky at Gosh Golly Wow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, plus more fun extras. Thank you, Mav and Andrew, for another very surreal convo. Thank you, Josh, for appreciating the alien with us. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. 